Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I meet with Holly Howard, founder of Ask Holly How, a business consultant who gives very unorthodox yet holistic and popular advice. It's interesting to me this like disconnect we have between these concepts because we all love sustainability now, right? We're all like, we're not going to carry plastic water bottles. We're, you know, all being sustainable. But it's very hard to like apply sustainability to theoretical business concepts. We get stuck. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. I wanted to have Holly Howard on my show today because the work she does with business and how it relates to the community and to the individual is very parallel to the work I do with the nervous system. It's looking at a system understanding what motivates it, what drives it. Is that, is that system driven from a place of trauma and fear? Or is it driven from a place of security and safety and love? And the same can be found in this work Holly does, which you'll hear in a moment. A business is just uh, made up of a bunch of systems, you know, people's nervous systems that project a concept into the world for people to attach to. And in that concept, people see parts of themselves. So you could own um, 
um, I don't know, you can own a, a business where you sell shoes. What's the story you tell about the shoes? That story, that identity, that personality you're creating is something people will attach to. So what I love about this is if we don't heal our trauma and we become entrepreneurs, everything that we're putting into the world and expressing and building is coming from a system that experiences threat and scarcity and insecurity and fear, essentially constriction. And so Holly goes into these businesses and notices, are these businesses operating from scarcity and constriction or are they operating from abundance and expansion? And I find part of my, my ongoing personal work and, and eventually it's become my professional work around decolonization. How do we decolonize our businesses? How do we start to bring them to a place of um, what we see in nature, biodiversity? And how do we start to see them as... Um, Holly speaks about it in this in this episode. Their seasons, their seasonalities. When do they winter? What does that look like? Are they allowed to? Can they afford to? How much money do the the people who own the business? How much do they keep for themselves? How much do they give to the the employees? How much do they put into funds? How much do they add to charities? If you're listening to this, um, it's it's a very interesting conversation. If you're an entrepreneur or you're a business owner, it's going to be especially interesting because you can ask yourself, wow, where am I operating from? What thoughts and beliefs and, and physiological states am I bringing to my business? What do I bring to my employees? What do I bring to my customer base? Am I monocropping, as Holly says in the interview? and staying in one lane and marketing to one group? Or am I becoming more biodiverse, more biodynamic? Am I spreading out? Am I secure enough to take the feedback and the response I get from my customers and grow with it versus shut it down or lose myself, become codependent because my insecurity depends on their love for me, their money, their business? It's a lot of really beautiful questions to ask yourself as a business person and entrepreneur. And let's dive into the episode so you can hear um, maybe some of the answers or where to begin. Welcome, Holly Howard, to the show. Thanks for having me, Luis. I, it's it's so full circle to have you here. You know, um, I think, I think. Was it eight, eight or nine years ago I met you? Can't even remember now. Um, I remember because it was it was actually right after I got married, which was 2014. 2014. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Seven yeah. years ago. Seven years ago. Yeah. I I'm, Holly and I met in Woodstock through someone else, through a client. Right. Yeah. And that that was in the old days before I <laughs> I didn't have a I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a computer. I didn't have an office. I had a briefcase. <laughs> I made house calls. Yeah. And I made it. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. And two funny stories. One, I will say the intro to your podcast, like the very first episode you did about like who am I? And you know, and you said something about like yeah, people really were like, oh, he's the guy at the health food store who's a healer. And that was like literally how somebody told me about you. And so when you <laughs> shared that on your podcast, I was like, 100%. It's oh, so it's so true. funny. Yeah, that was my life for a while and I loved it. And then yeah. now this is, it's taken this, this adventure, which is cool. I remember when I would come to your house and other people's homes with my briefcase. And when I would go to the city with it, I would have a barred owl feather in it and sage and i remember opening up and in the city it would blow people's minds but in woodstock they were just like oh yeah that's that's us yeah um, but it was like keeping the mountain with me you know so yeah. that's that's really funny i want people to know how you got here because the work you really do is about connecting the person you know to their business in a way where they can have really healthy expressions that that work for all and that comes from a deep place and you challenge a lot of standard American concepts of business, yet you have a huge wait list. So it's, tell us, tell us how you got to this point. Like, 
where did Holly come from to develop all that? Yeah, it's funny. I, I can, can I give you two answers to that? Yeah. Like my ego answer and then the phone <laughs> phone Yes, please. Ego first. Okay. The ego answer is that my path has been incredibly varied. Um, I was a professional ballerina out of high school for three years. And then I went to music school at Berkeley where I studied bassoon and became a music therapist influenced by the work of Oliver Sacks. Did music therapy for three years in New York, which is what brought me here, and then decided I was going to be a doctor. So I quit that for a year, took a year off, and I went back to Columbia and became a pre-med student, and I got a job at Lenox Hill Hospital as a medical researcher. And I went through that path, and then as I was applying to med school, I had a real existential crisis and realized I couldn't do it. I couldn't go to med school because I had previously come from a really non-traditional place of healing and med school to me just felt way too rigid. Mm. So I became a waitress instead for a year and it was working at this restaurant that I first learned about business and about managing people. I was given the opportunity to manage and it I'm just self-taught. I read a ton of books. I Um, learned on the job. And this was right around the 2008 recession when so many people in Brooklyn were starting small businesses that I realized that, and I should say too, in doing that, I was able to turn the restaurant around and go to Congress to testify why good, healthy business practices, living wages, clear systems, healthy cultures was important for business. Mm. And I launched my consulting practice from there. Mm, beautiful. So that's the eco answer. That's my ego answer. And I realized that, and that's the only answer I knew for a long time, to be mm. honest. So I realized in when I'm now in a space actually where I am going to return to med school and a lot has healed within me, I realized that I started this business because I came from such a scarcity place myself. Mm. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. My parents are divorced. There's a lot of family drama. And because he was an alcoholic and he lost his job, we were raised on scarcity, um, like true scarcity. And I think that as I grew up as an adult, it started to fascinate me as I got out into the world, like, oh my, oh my God, am I going to end up under a bridge? Like that was always the family joke that you couldn't spend more one more penny or you'd end up under the bridge, you know, homeless. And it was very extreme, the scarcity. And so I realized to me, this whole journey has been about understanding why we have these mindsets, what they do to us in our adult lives, how they impact everything that we can do and what we can do differently to change it. Mm. So that's really like, and then realizing as I started working on my own scarcity mindset, just how abundant and rich my life actually became and wanting to help people realize like there's a different way to see the world. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, You know, I, I love your work and I'm interested in, you know, I wrote a couple things down. What I'm most interested in right now is the business and the identity. Because when I look out into the landscape and I think of um, colonization, I think of capitalism, I think of patriarchy, I think of trauma, all these words that we throw out, I want you to help me, for the listeners, connect the dots with all those words to business and identity. Okay. Let's just dive in there and tell me what comes up for you. Like, where does that go? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, so much comes up when you say all of those words. One, because they are um, so prominent especially through 2020. And to, I mean, just to dive right in, I often think about like the misunderstanding that we have around so many of those words about like, um, are they us or are they how we behave? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make. Um, You know, is it actually who I am or is it just how I'm behaving in this moment? And that to me really like starts to connect back to this conversation around identity, who we are, Versus maybe how we behave in certain so, times. So what do you, when it comes to that identity versus behavior, how do you experience that with your business consulting work? Like, what are you seeing in the landscape of businesses, whether they're large or small? Is there a difference? What does that look like? Yeah, I think that in the landscape of business, and 
Um, Luis, because you do know me, I might jump around and try to tie a few things together. But I think what I've realized, I've been really focused on this differentiation between point of view and personality lately. Mm. So what is our point of view versus what about, what is our personality? And what I see a lot in my business consulting, especially in the last year, is really helping people understand the difference between those two, which to me is about this idea of identity and what can be shared and what cannot be shared. So this idea that my, I think we, in the last couple of years with the rise of social media and online living, have become really intoxicated by personalities mm. and we really fail to dig into points of view and we really conflate what those things are. And I'm really trying to help people get back to understanding their points of view and not so much focusing on their personalities. So tell us the difference in your yeah. opinion. How do you see point of view and how do you see personality yeah, through, that's through business, I would say, especially? Yeah, and I, I will definitely emphasize that this is my opinion. Um, but that for me, point of view is something that can be shared, right? So especially when we are coming back to culture, when we're thinking about what a culture is, if a culture is built around a personality, it's extremely hard to share that culture with others and to pass that culture on and to accept differing points of view around that point of view, right? Mm -hmm. So around that personality. So we really get into trouble and especially in business when we start to build around our personality. And that is why we can see the business as something separate from ourselves only when we can start to understand our point of view because I can separate myself from my point of view, right? But I can't separate myself from my personality. It's just who I am. It's, you know, how I'm behaving and how I'm showing up. So to me, it's like the biggest differentiation is this like ability to be shared. Can mm -hmm. a point of view be shared by a lot of people? Can a personality be shared by a lot of people? And to me, a personality can't be shared by a lot of people. It can be worshipped by a lot of people, which we know is like a dangerous thing. Um, it can be intoxicating to a lot of people. But point of view really opens up for discussion and dialogue and things like that that are healthy ways to engage. Mm, I love that. What you're saying is so reasonable and also so taboo in a way, right? <laughs> Because <laughs> when, you know, when I think of point of view, I think it's so interesting because I, I think there's a, a misunderstanding in the world of, of someone's point of view isn't the, who they are, isn't their personality. And so when a business has a point of view that, let's say, offends a certain group of people, and then, they, then we see like performative allyship or whatever kind of a desperate attempt to regain the following... Well, how does that show up in your work? Or what is your theory around that? The idea of um, point of view being mistaken for identity or personality. What does that look like? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I just immediately where my mind went with that question is just back to a, an example I had with a client in 2020, you know, with the uprising of Black Lives Matter and people starting to share their points of view around support for the movement and customer feedback that might have come in that was a differing point of view, a disagreeing point of view, we could almost say. Mm -hmm. But um, taking a lead from what I learned from you and really focused on nonviolent communication and being able to respond from a place like, this is our point of view, you absolutely have the right to have your point of view, and we're interested in dialogues, was, was for the clients that use that so impactful and amazing because mm -hmm. people didn't leave. People didn't like stop supporting them or, you know, because the person that said, I, you know, I stand with Black Lives Matter didn't reject the person that didn't stand with them initially. They said, you have a right. I want to hear you. Thank you for hearing us. Let's keep this conversation going. Hmm. And for me, um, that's a really helpful and healthy way to keep things moving forward, you know, mm -hmm. and, and building bridges. When, and when I hear you say that, just like when you brought in the nonviolent communication, that would be an example of like a, a business to customer base. That's the yeah. macro of yeah. what the micro would be like a person to person. So it's another form of a relationship, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
And what happens in your experience with customers, or I should say businesses who don't do that, who either shut out the feedback or who completely you know, change their beliefs because of the feedback. So more, I almost hear like more to codependent responses. Like what is yeah. that like? Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. Um, because <laughs> I often say, one, because I was a black belt in codependence. Um, so I really <laughs> understand it deeply. But also because what I noticed happened a lot was this mix up between compassion and codependence, right? So that when we think that we are being compassionate, but we, the visual I had when you were just asking me this question, Luis, was like that, um, you know, those punching dolls and punching isn't part of it, but the, the big blow up ones that are like weighted at the bottom and then you mm-hmm. hit it, and it moves to one side and then it moves to the other, but it always like comes back to me. It's like when you're not grounded in your own point of view when you get feedback, you end up like this punching doll, right? You like bend way over and then you're like, wait a second, is that what I believe? Let me come back. And then somebody else tells you something and you bend over to another side Mm. instead of being able to stand in your point of view and accept all of them and be able to navigate them and give feedback and hear and agree and disagree and things like that. So where my mind goes, and, and correct me if I use any terminology that isn't you know, correct or proper because I don't really know the business world. When I hear that, I hear in my mind the difference between actual culture and community versus I mean, what I'm hearing is corporatism. I don't know if that's the right word, but something that's much more fixed and stale versus something that's more authentic and actually symbiotic. Can you tell me what, that's, what that is I'm feeling into? Yeah. So I I talk about it in two ways. One, I say it's the difference between a click and a culture. So a click is very much like you're not part of the group, right? We are part of the group. But a more recent way I've been um, discussing it is about the difference between cult and culture, Mm. right? So cult is very much about, and you know, I I love a good cult documentary as much as the next person. (laughs) It's very much about these are our values and only these. And this is only how we behave. And we don't question most likely the personality that's at the top of that, right? So this Mm. is where personality becomes dangerous. Where our culture is really about, you know, I go back to native writers, um, like Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, among other books. And she talks about this, you know, biodiversity, right? And it really if we think about cultures, the more diverse our cultures actually are, and the more diverse points of view within those cultures, the richer they're going to be. Mm-hmm. But what I tell people is that we can't even begin to have those conversations without knowing what your culture is, right? So sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to define it because then I'm too rigid. And I'm like, no, you're not rigid, but we all need to come back to center. And that kind of goes back to that like punching doll, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to have a way to come back to center but then you can be open and you can hear these things and you can have rich experiences because they are so diverse. Mm. I love that. I, I love that because I feel like um, that second way of doing it that creates the biodiversity yeah. within, within the culture. I also hear that there would be diversity amongst demographics in the marketplace. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's another place where we've gone really wrong is thinking that um, when we're, quote unquote, like a new way to talk about customers is like building communities. But what we've done is we've created these like monocrop communities. And it's really, I feel like it's so dangerous in the sense that, you know, years ago, there was an author, Seth Godin, who came out with the phrase, find your tribe. And by no means do I think that he had ill intentions by saying find your tribe, like at all. But what I think we did with that advice was it unconsciously gave us permission to become tribal. Mm. And so, and then we used our tribalism and said, well, we we're finding our tribes, you know, like that's what we're doing. But um, again, I do not think that's what he encouraged when that statement came out. It's just like how it grew. Or I should say it's my experience of how it grew and what I see with how people approach their customer base. And when you say that I'm hearing, um, tribalism in the way of becoming isolationist versus, you know, speaking and integrating and sharing. 
Exactly. Or thinking like our, our version of our tribes became so narrow. Um, I can, like somebody once said to me, oh yeah, they're all Democrats and they all had dogs. And I'm like, mm. well, that's pretty narrow. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's probably more to, you know, to, to, to dig into there to see like how rich our connections actually are, you know, when mm. we whittle ourselves down to like, oh, the people I serve are Democrats with dogs. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it to me is a concerning place. So now where my mind goes when you say that is to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think of, you know, I know you've done a lot of work and especially in this last year, but how do you see the the early foundations of white supremacy you know, hundreds of years ago showing up and how people practice business now? And I, yeah. I don't even mean white or black people. I mean, just human beings, like what's in their mind? Yeah. I've been thinking about this topic a lot, actually, in all the work and reading that I've done. And a phrase that I've been really substituting in my mind, though I'll take ownership that it's not fully fleshed out, it's still something I'm working on, is really even like setting aside white supremacy and using the phrase scarcity supremacy. Because to me, that is the root of white supremacy, is this idea of scarcity, right? So... um, I was reading the book um, Stamped from the Beginning, which is like the remix. Um, and the author's name is Jason Reynolds, and he remixed Ibram Kendi's book Stamped. And so his tone is a little bit more like he's a young adult author. So it brings like this vibrancy to the writing. And he was going back through the history just as Resma um, does in his book. And it really made me think about like, where did all of this come from? And realizing how much scarcity is at the core of all of this, right? Mm-hmm. So like, really like to me, scarcity is what has been with us for centuries. And, and I see it play out in business now in the sense that we do think things are so scarce, right? So mm-hmm. not resources, which can be truly scarce. And by resources, I mean the natural world, right? That we have to treat. But scarcity is in like, there's not enough opportunity for me, or there wouldn't be enough customers to believe in what it is that I do, or there wouldn't be enough um, time to make my vision a reality. Like there's so much scarcity. I feel like it's just in our DNA. I love that. I love that. That makes so much sense to me because, um, I mean, anyone that follows this podcast knows exactly what you're talking about because I've had um, amazing um, scholars and psychologists and um, racism recovery coaches on here to talk about this history. And all these things, all these things that I call, you know, just simply results of the colonized world, the, the patriarchy, the sexism, the xenophobia, the racism, capitalism, all these things that have become toxic, which yeah. are, can be, I, I actually am from the taboo belief capitalism can be really healthy, but yeah. corporate capitalism is like a whole other animal. Maybe we'll get to that. But all these things are symptoms of scarcity, right? Yeah. Because the, the original white flight from Europe that created this country as we know it now, that was a scarcity model that the country was created on. A hundred percent. There's an amazing documentary on PBS. PBS has this great show called Secrets of the Dead. And one is about, um, I might misstate this and I'll send you the right name. I think it's Jamestown, which was in Virginia, one of the first mm-hmm. settlements. And it was so so much scarcity that they had to um, resort to cannibalism. And you just realize like, no, that's been our nation, right? That we've been, we haven't had a day since we, you know, invaded without scarcity on this Mm. continent, right? So the natives were here, but since we came, it's been about scarcity. It's amazing. I mean, because even the word invasion, you can't invade unless you're coming from scarcity. Right. I mean, why would you want to or have to? You know, yeah. there has to be such an unsettling and secure tone in your own body and in yeah. the collective. And so when you are working with individuals, and I'm, I'm assuming the systems of their businesses too, like sometimes dozens of team members and such, how much of that in terms of that individual scarcity becomes like a collective scarcity? That's part of how they do business, how they set their prices, how they possibly, I don't know how deep this can go, but how they even respect or disrespect natural resources they're sourcing things from. Like, what's your experience around that? Yeah. So it's so easy for it to become the collective mindset, again, because I feel like it's truly 
in our DNA. And unless we've done a lot of work on ourselves mm-hmm. um, and had a lot of awareness about it, we it's so easy um, to use a phrase that you use to co-regulate with people in the scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. It's like we we almost find it as this way to co-regulate unconsciously. And so I see it really pass be passed around like a truth, right? And then when it's in a group as a truth, it's it's really a lot of work to dismantle that truth because a lot of people are believing it at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if the entrepreneur comes with that, it's not hard to find team members that will also reinforce that belief, a market that will help you reinforce that belief, media that will help you reinforce that belief. Mm-hmm. Which is why I always say there's no business growth without personal growth because you have to be able to step back and realize that your business is just an extension of everything within you, right? Within your mindset, within um, you know the the points of view that you bring to it. And if one of them is scarcity, it's going to permeate every aspect from your financial planning to your operations to your marketing. And when you say that, you know, my mind, of course, goes to trauma. And I just see this big trauma bond happening between, you know, the customers, the business, the team members, the owners, the families, all these people just, when you say scarcity, that's a traumatic state to really believe you don't have enough or something bad is going to happen to you or someone wants to get your thing. And so to live in that, that hyper arousal around that, how do you see that working into the fabric, the nervous system, if you will? of the business? Like, what does that look like? I think that's why actual change is incredibly hard, right? Because those trauma bonds happen and we feel very supported in trauma bonds, even when they aren't healthy, right? Mm -hmm. We feel a sense of safety in that bonding. So that's where to, you know, a lot of what happened in 2020 and addressing um, anti-racism within businesses it's one thing to be aware of the idea, right? This is this is real. This is present. We need to do something about it. It's another to be able to build the bridge back to our own actions within our company mm. when we are surrounded by people who also potentially think the same way that we do. Meaning mm. like I saw a lot of people at protests. I saw a lot of people taking seminars. But then when it's within their own company, like, oh, well, why don't you adjust this job posting or why don't you seek for you know candidates for jobs in different posting sites like job boards it's it's a whole new level of awareness and action that has to happen and that's Um, the that's the opposition of what you were saying about the monocropping exactly yeah and because those it's like those trauma bonds have to start being broken to take new actions right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one way we have to try, you know, really consciously. And what comes with that? Discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. We start breaking trauma bonds and we're starting to do things differently. It's a lot of discomfort, which I think goes very much against the, the narrative of what we're sold about entrepreneurship, especially in the last decade. Like, mm-hmm. just found your company and get your website up. And like, you're a founder, you're amazing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you got this. Like, no, it's actually really hard. And I feel like there's no real outlet that tells the true story of what it means to be an entrepreneur. So when I hear the true story, what, what I hear is the, the reality that being an entrepreneur is just being a relationship in a new way. It's not a separate thing from relationship. Mm-hmm. And how we relate only is only as good as how we're relating to ourselves. So it really comes back to the fabric of the human before, you know, screw training, forget how much money you have, forget how good your website looks. I'm assuming it comes back to the fabric of the human. It a hundred percent does, which is again, like why I go back to personal growth. And that's where I often will feel challenged in this space because I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, people will come to me and they're like, I need a marketing plan or I need a financial plan. And ultimately, like so frequently, I'm like, no, first you need a good therapist, you know, mm. because you can't build these things you're in right now, or you will just continue these patterns no matter what your marketing plan says or no matter what, you know, your financial plan looks like. So it really is about, you know, what is the internal state of the human like and then how you build from there. 
So this is where we get a bit philosophical. You know, when you say that piece, I see you as kind of like a spy. Like you've been, you've been like, <laughs> you've been, you've been invited into the 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 background, like the filthy, gritty background of these, you know, really beautiful, charming businesses. And I'm curious, in that place, what are you learning about your country? Like, what does that mean for you? Um, about my country. You know, specifically how we how we exist, you know, financially and with business and with marketing and advertising. What are you learning about our psyche? I mean, I, I go back to that. I mean, this might sound dramatic, but just that the, I feel so lied to and so betrayed, right? So we, when we think about the American dream or we think about like American prosperity, you know, like this prosperous nation, And the reality, though, is that when I think about what America actually is, it's it's a nation still operating on a scarcity model, right? And it's so much operating out of fear. So many decisions are made out of fear, and especially in business, right? So we look outside of ourselves. Nothing drives me crazier than the concept of branding. This idea of like, I'm going to look out to the market and I'm going to see what it tells me I should be so that I can gain a competitive advantage over somebody. And especially right now, there's this idea, (laughs) there's this like phrase in venture capital and especially direct to consumer brand development where they call it white space. So they're like, what's the white space meaning empty, right? And I was just reading an article about the white space for kale chips. And it really <laughs> made me, yeah, exactly. Well, it made me realize I go, I went back to actually a newsletter I wrote about manifest destiny and um, the pioneers that were moving westward because America was built on this idea of like manifest destiny, you should take over this continent. Mm. Like it, you, it is yours. And I see the same lessons here. We are hundreds of years later being like, you need to take over the kale chip space and mm. dominate it. And it's like, do you, do we, do we need to? Like, I'm not sure. See, that's right there. That's where your work really resonates the most. And that's what I want people to hear. Yeah. That, that it's yours to take. Like, I just want to say that that phrase, like it's yours or it's yours to take or you're entitled or if you're the fastest and screw them, they lost, right? Yeah. That's so in the fabric of the American psyche and, and DNA, forget the psyche, the blood, the bones, right? The body memory. Yes. That, that amazes me. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and I, one clarification I really want to make about this is that and, you know, back to braiding sweetgrass, she talks about moss, right? And she's, I, I'm working on a newsletter called On Moss and Markets because her whole thing is like, moss is not competitive, right? It's all out there together. It's different. It's like living. It's, it's all happening. And so when I say like, we shouldn't approach the market as a competition, which is like what is taught in capitalism and NBAs and all of this, it's not because I'm not like, I don't believe in competition or like we should all be winners, I love competition in the appropriate arena, right? Like it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm going to watch it. I'm a Tom Brady fan. <laughs> I'll admit it. You know, like, <laughs> I love it. But I don't believe that the markets are a competition. And when we treat them as such, we drive home that scarcity mentality that there's not room enough for all of us, right? And we approach growth from a very toxic place of dominance. Mm. And that's why oftentimes people get really nervous. I teach business growth, right? Well, growth means a lot of things. Growth does not just mean dominance. It doesn't mean taking out your competition. It means an evolution, right? Even even mold and rot grow, right? Amoebas grow. We're just all constantly evolving till the day we die. That's what growth means to me, this evolution, instead of like, I need to dominate and push. I'm glad you're saying that because the, the idea of domination is so stagnant actually. Yeah. And it doesn't compost. Like when we're talking about the natural world, it's always evolving and change is a big part of that evolution and death and birth of these cycles of change, which bring huge amounts of growth and catalytic events, you know, to our bodies and our land. And when I think of the idea of being dominating or being the best, when you were talking, I was thinking how every Every inauguration or campaign or anything of any president I've ever watched, they always say, I, you know, America is the best 
country in the world. I'm like, why do we have to say that? Like, what, you know, what, why does that matter? You know, it's like, we're not the best. No one's the best country in the world. So it's this idea of it's very stale to fix. Yeah. And, and it's very masculine, not even male, but like the masculine energy of fixing a concept versus letting it be like vulnerable and move and grow and, and respond and, and kind of have, I'm curious about this too, like cycles of birth and death. Yeah. There isn't a lot of room for that in a lot of businesses. There's just supposed to be growth, growth, growth. Yeah. But what about like the book you, you recommended? What about wintering? What does that look like for a business? Yeah. Well, in business, I teach people about their seasonality. So seasonality means like, let me reflect on my business and see how it behaves at different times of the year. Because oftentimes, like, you know, our, we are here in the Northeast, there's seasons, right? And businesses usually have seasons too. And I'm really amazed how many people resist me on this. They're like, oh, my business doesn't have a season. I'm like, well, have you checked? Like, have we plotted any data points and looked at them visually? Like, let's just see. And oftentimes almost everybody's business has a season and we want to respect those seasons. And what's interesting to me is people will ask then in the slow season, well, should I be like pumping my marketing in that slow season to get it up to be a peak like the rest of the seasons? Mm. And I'm like, that's so interesting to me. Like, no, you should like take a breather, do some planning, do your back end, like clean your house, you know, not your physical house. I'm just meaning like a business house and, and be ready. But it's interesting to me, this like disconnect we have between these concepts because we all love sustainability now, right? We're all like, we're not going to carry plastic water bottles. We're, you know, all being sustainable, but it's very hard to like apply sustainability to theoretical business concepts. We get stuck. <laughs> and I think we get stuck because we trust experts, right? So we trust experts that tell us growth should be ongoing, you know, like um, that it should be never ending. And, and so we're like, well, I don't know. I didn't get an MBA. I guess they know better than I do. So it's really interesting to me how we can like have a hard time shifting that way of thinking over to concepts and not just like, you know, I compost every day. I really love that because um, the experts as innocent or well-intentioned as they might be, they're, they're coming from that same trauma. They're coming from that concept of not enough. So if you're in the world telling people they have to boost their sales, they have to market more. They, if they stop growing, that's the beginning of the death of their business. There's so much, even when I say it to you, I start constricting. It's like, there's so much fear and stress related to that. But the place to speak to when you were saying the insecure, the scarcity supremacy, it's such a scarcity supremacy to think, okay, every February, my sales go down. I have to boost my marketing. Yeah. Says what happens if they go? What happens in my body? You know, this is where the therapist steps in. Like, what happens in me when the sales go down? Yeah. What fear do I project? What What do I remember about my own poverty? What comes up that would make me want to boost my sales and dominate the market? Yeah, exactly. And then when we start making those decisions from a fear based place, we're always headed down a path that we're going to have to correct eventually. Mm. Definitely. So, I mean, there's so much I wanted to ask. Um, the, other, the, the piece that was coming up when you were saying all that, I would say around toxic growth. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what I said earlier about capitalism. And I want your, your response on this, again, because you know, you know more about than I do. Mine's more of like a feeling. But when I think of capitalism, I, I really think of um, the freedom of the consumer to essentially destabilize malpractices by not paying them by not paying for them and, and redirecting their money to another, let's say, business or source. In my mind, that's if, if there's going to be capitalism and there's going to be for a while, like that's the best way to use it, you know, while we have it. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, like capitalism versus corporate capitalism or subsidized. What is that? Where does that go with toxic growth? Yeah. So I don't know a lot about the differentiation between those terms. Like when you say corporate capitalism, I'm not necessarily familiar. So I can't speak to that, but what I can speak to in terms of capitalism is what I have said in the past. And that when we look at the very foundational definition of capitalism, it just means privately owned for profit. 
And then some very foundational definitions add on that um, reward stakeholders the most. But even in all three of those, so let's go back to this. So privately owned mean, just means like that the government isn't part of my business. So it doesn't mean I can't have partners or a collective or anything like that, like multiple people. It just means that the government's, <laughs> the government's not up in my business. That's the first thing. The second thing for profit means that it makes money, right? So it's not always losing money. And this third idea about stakeholders getting more is important, actually. What is off is how much more a stakeholder gets, right? Because if I'm a founder of a business, I do want to make sure that I make more than my employees because I also have to cover so many things for that business. And I am responsible for it, right? So I want to put away money in case a pandemic hits and I need that money in the future. Now, do I need to make twice as much as my employees or 50 times as much as my employees? That's where the scale has probably gotten way out of control. Mm -hmm. But my problem when we talk about capitalism is again, it's like, okay, let's just let's just ground ourselves in the definition and let's just think about is it capitalism itself or the way that we behave within capitalism and those are very different things mm -hmm. and oft oftentimes we again can't separate our behavior from it because we want to point at a system instead of within ourselves it's mm -hmm. so easy to be like capitalism is the problem mm -hmm. instead of well wait a second maybe those three things aren't bad it's just how they're to what extreme do i get paid um, you know, no, I don't want the government in my business. And yes, it does need to make money so it can keep moving forward. But mm -hmm. does money need to be the only focus of it? Capitalism never said you can't think about the planet or the people. Mm -hmm. So I think that with capitalism, we just want to make sure like if we behave in a healthy way, to me, from the foundational definition, it's not a broken system because all we're going to do is take those behaviors into the next system if we don't. And I'll give you an example of this. Like everybody was like, pull your money out of a bank and put it in a credit union, which is fine. But years ago, there was an article about the taxi collapse here in New York City. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's a good story I'll tell really quickly. Mm -hmm. So taxis, yellow taxis, the medallions, <laughs> In the rise of Uber, without going into too much detail, the medallions just spiked to astronomical rates and these taxi drivers went into bankruptcy and there were suicides and people, you know, it was so severe and it turned out to be a credit union that was in, they arrested all of these people. And I'm like, it, to me, it's just like, I'm telling you, like, we just have to, don't say like the credit unions are going to fix it mm -hmm. because we can still be corrupting credit unions. I completely agree. Um, yeah. You know, I can see that in individuals over the years, you know, people who um, I've had people move to other countries because they think when they go somewhere else and they completely redefine their life and culture and home and land and job, everything's going to change. Yeah. And, you know, the nervous system is a system that is, is fixed when it's in a trauma state. Yeah. And when it's not in a trauma state, it's really diverse and it's really flexible and it's very adaptive. And so when the nervous system is in that trauma state, which would be part of the scarcity, you know, complex, and you take that scarcity to another system, a really beautiful, organic, holistic system, you're going to squash it out with yeah. your trauma. That's just what happens. Yeah. And so there's no system that's going to bail anybody out. It's the, it's the individual nervous system and then the collective nervous systems, you know, healing out on a collective level. Yeah. So I completely agree with you on that. And yeah. I, I remember my experience of that was, Oh gosh, we get the dates wrong. I want to say 2008. I don't remember when it was. When was Occupy Wall Street? Do you remember? Just after that crash. So 2008, 9, 10. Right. So I was in the financial district, just like walking in town, like I was doing. I was broke, a broke artist. And I remember seeing, you know, droves of young people protesting. Yeah. And every single one was coming out of Starbucks. And I, I was, and I was, I went, <laughs> and I went up to them and I, I had my little tin with like tea that I made at home that I got from Flower Power where they got from upstate New York. <laughs> and I was just, I was noticing as much as I respected their message, I was just noticing on the level of where we put our money, the blindness, 
Yeah. And, and I just thought the system that you're competing against is the same one you're feeding with your money. And yeah. I'm broke and I feel more alive and wealthy than you do because I put every last cent into my community. And so I keep getting back in that way. And that's yeah. where I experienced it. So I don't know if... It's interesting that you bring up that Occupy Wall Street. Um, I, I did not Occupy Wall Street. And furthermore, I knew people that did. One being like a multi multi-billionaire investor. And it was just so <laughs> interesting to me where I'm like, oh, this is who's down occupying Wall Street. And to your point, not that I don't believe that we need a lot of, you know, changes there. Mm-hmm. But I was like, this to me was not going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that that's not necessarily what protests are about, but I, I am right there with you where I was like, oh, what's, I like to, I went to Columbia and every day at Columbia, there was like a different protest when I went there Mm -hmm. and it was just so fascinating to me. And I was like, what, what are we doing here? You know, like what I want to know, like what's at the root, how do we make change? But, you know, I think that maybe protests serve a different purpose. Mm -hmm. And I was, and like you're saying, I respect them too. I've been part of them. I've, I've been, you know, very, um, very active in the past politically And at the same time, I've found the greatest change in my own life comes from exactly where I'm spending my time and money. And then this little community that is kind of a secret when you're not in it is so vibrant and alive and you can keep building that and creating a new culture right there. Yeah. And I will say to build on that, Luis, back to your question about like where you're spending your money, I do think that that's so important. And part of what I talk to people about is like the mass re-education we need for consumers about why things cost the way that they cost, you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of my clients, you know, personally manufacture and things are much more expensive. I recognize that with my client base, but when you aren't just importing, you know, from China, it is much more expensive. And again, like, I know I'm not like singling out importing from China, but I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that Ryan and I use, um, you know, we talk about this because we see people who maybe at the holiday times go to um, a big box store and buy a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. To have a lot of things under the tree. And we can't do that. You know, we'll, we'll buy a few things and you can either have like a lot of really cheap things or just a few things. And I think though that to that scarcity, it's like when we ran out of toilet paper in the pandemic, mm-hmm. we want a lot, we want to hoard a lot of things mm-hmm. instead of just having a few. So it's mm-hmm. a little re-education, I think. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. I I think the last thing I want to ask you is what are you what are you seeing right now? What's happening right now? You know, if you can even answer that, if there's like a collective shift or movement or awakening i don't mean like even a good one but what do you notice what's the symptoms what symptoms are you seeing right now within the people and landscape you work with with business that you would say need to be healed let's put it this way (laughs) if you look at all the symptoms across the businesses that you work with and the ones you don't just from the work you do what would you say is the most important thing that needs to be worked with immediately to nourish our cultures versus creating cults ourselves. I mean, a hundred percent ourselves. There's so much work that needs to be done within first. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, you know, with some people, I should say, I'm like, no, you can't even work on, they'll be like, I need a vision and goals. And I'm like, no, because it's going to come from this place, this really damaged hurting place. Mm -hmm. So just take some time to like reset yourself. And I think you could speak to this more like, even just get on the path of resetting yourself personally, and then you can work on the two of them together. But the reality is that no system is going to change us. And I know that is so hard to hear and no policy is going to change us. Again, I know it is so hard to hear, but change only comes from within. And then the policies that get made from that place or the systems that get rebuilt from that place will actually have a really good impact. But even it's so painful to look within. It's Mm -hmm. so, so painful. And, you know, I know that sometimes we talk about, especially in the anti-racism space, like, well, is it a privilege to be able to look within? Do we need, you know, resources to be able to look within? And my answer to this, I, I, (laughs) 
I always bring up Gwyneth Paltrow in these situations and you actually, Luis, because Gwyneth, which who to me can be a really polarizing figure for people. So she owns Goop and her, but she always says, I've always said wellness is free. It's water, it's walking and it's rest. And I remember when I first met you and we were having this conversation about organic food and you were like, well, it's our narrative is wrong because organic is actually the cheapest, right? And you were like, I will teach you how to go to sunflower, sunflower, right? Yeah. <laughs> and how to buy, you know, eat a fully organic diet, the cheapest you've ever eaten, you know, through beans, through, you know, bulk and all of this. And I think sometimes in an attempt to avoid really looking within and doing the really hard work we come up with these reasons why it's inaccessible instead of like, we can all journal a page a day. We can all take five minutes of silence and see if we're even in our body. And it's even just those small steps that we tend to really avoid. Mm. I love that so much because, um, I love that because when you're saying those those thing I said to you and, and what Gwyneth Paltrow said and what you just said even about time and giving yourself space to just sit with yourself, it's it's really true that the 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 healing and the abundance and the wealth are really in the simplicity. You know, because like you know, when you said about organics, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times over the years, especially with social media now, where people will write saying, like, you know, how dare you? You're so privileged, I can't eat organic. And I'm like, I started eating organic when I had $9,000 a year. That's all I made is $9,000 a year. That's really under the poverty line. And I ate completely organic that entire year and somehow smoked organic cigarettes. Don't ask me how, but so, (laughs) but they were organic. But so, you know, because it's, it's such the simplicities of the earth are really easy to grow and really easy to store and really easy to make. And they yield a lot of nutrients but we we have these complex ideas from the scarcity mindset of well that's not enough and that's like a colonial concept you know you should have the things from the boxes you should have these lavish dinners and you have to pay for that or you have to compromise your values and devalue other people to excessively eat that way if that makes sense it makes total sense and there's a really great quote that might like pull all of this together and I can't remember now if it's from the book The Course in Miracles or if it's for, from Marianne Williamson who teaches on The Course in Miracles but either way it's together there. And the quote is complexity is of the ego and simplicity is of the spirit, right? Mm. So when things are simple we we are in our spirit self. When we make things complex, it's from our ego, right? Like we really like, and, and I always try to notice that for myself. Like if I'm feeling like my life has become complex, is it because I'm in my ego? If a business solution is complex, is it because I'm in my ego, right? And really, ultimately, you know, it goes back to us feeling valued for being able to like come up with complex solutions or like, you know, that and kind of full circle in our conversation goes back to, I think, white supremacy, right? Like what, what do we value? Do we value productivity and like these really complex ways of thinking or do we value simplicity? That's a beautiful way to end this. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real treat. For more information on Holly and the work she does, you can go to askhollyhow.com. You can join her email list there. I strongly recommend joining her email list. She has an incredible newsletter she sends out throughout the month, and they're very creatively written, and they have a lot of uh, just great advice and prompts to help deepen uh, this work of becoming much more healthier in your business practices by first becoming more healthier in your sense of self and your security. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice, what's your body doing right now? Sit with it, let it speak to you, and let whatever comes up, come up. 
And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give in to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.